Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn them to Psalm 34. And if you are using one of the blue Bibles in front of you, that's on page 512. You are welcome to use those Bibles, and you're welcome to keep those Bibles. If you don't have one at home, we would love to give that to you as our gift. Psalm 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This morning what I want to talk about is the fact that there are two deficient, two deficient versions of Christianity that masquerade as the real thing. One version emphasizes only the victory we have in Jesus. Talking about all the ways we see God's blessing in our life. But what they leave out is suffering. They'll tell you all about the good things that following Jesus brings, but they'll never mention that the Jesus we follow went to a cross and then called all who would follow him to take up their own. They talk about the kingdom, but they leave out the part where Scripture says it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Their version of Christianity is all prosperity 
no pain. Now, on the other hand, there's another version that we can sometimes run to when times are hard. We, we go the complete opposite direction. We can imagine that life is nothing but hard and that all we can do is just get along the best we can. We readily acknowledge the brokenness of our world and even the sin inside of us, but we don't really expect anything to change. It just is the way it is. We sing songs of God's power and goodness, but our hearts only half believe what our lips are saying. We resign ourselves to a life of suffering and pain. But I want to show you this morning that both of these views are wrong. Because they both leave out something crucially true to understanding the Christian life. One way has no hardship, the other way has no hope. The Bible does not sugarcoat the life of trusting God. If you look down at verse 19, I think this verse sums it up well. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's right there. But the Bible doesn't leave us to wallow in our trials. It acknowledges our afflictions and promises us the help we need. Keep reading verse 19. It doesn't just acknowledge the hardship, saying many are the afflictions of the righteous. It gives us hope. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And both of these are gloriously true. We will face hardship, but we have sure hope. And you see it in our title this morning. I borrowed the first part from an old hymn that just popped into my head, but here's my take on it. I said the Christian life is often sorrow, often woe, but we will be delivered. This I know. To put it another way, our title could have been, Suffering is Expected, but Rescue is Guaranteed. And we need to hear both this morning. So Christian, if you're facing affliction this morning, don't be surprised. It's normal. But if you're facing affliction, also don't be discouraged. Because it's not the last word. We have a God who saves and that's what this psalm is all about. It's about the reality of suffering and the rescue of our Savior. And I'm just going to tell you, it is a rich psalm, so buckle up. But before we jump in, we need to say a word about the background of this psalm. I don't know about you, but I always love, when there's a song that I like, I love hearing the backstory about why the writer wrote that song and what it was really about. Well, David does that for us here. He gives us the story behind Psalm 34 in the superscript, that very first part in all caps. Look there, it says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Okay, so what's that story all about? Well, back in 1 Samuel 21, David was in a desperate situation. He was on the run from King Saul, who had tried to kill him multiple times. David ran away and then Saul didn't leave well enough alone. He sends a team of assassins after him. So David gets so desperate, he's thinking, where can I go? Where can I flee? You know where he goes? He flees to Gath. Now Gath is an enemy city opposed to the Israelites, which just so happens to be the hometown to none other than Goliath. Now if you remember David and Goliath's history, but it's, it wasn't, there was no love lost between them. So David shows up in Goliath's hometown on the run, carrying Goliath's sword, no less, 
which he picks up right before he goes. So he's walking around town with all the people that grew up with his buddy Goliath, this guy that he had killed, carrying Goliath's sword. And do you think anybody identified who this guy was? Of course they did. So they recognize him. They drag him to the king and say, look who's here. So in desperation, David pretends to be insane. He literally just acts like a madman. He's drooling all over his beard and he's just, he's acting like there's no sense in him. And the king buys it. And instead of killing him, he just says, what do I need with another crazy guy? Get him out of here. And so it's this deliverance, this desperate Hail Mary of an attempt to say, okay, here goes nothing. I'm going to act crazy. And God made it work. It's that deliverance that David is celebrating here in Psalm 34. He was in this hopeless situation and God saved him. Just as he'd already done time and time again and he would do time and time again. And David wants to celebrate here that he has a God who saves. He wants to sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Now this psalm, if you look through and you're trying to follow a flow, at first it might be a little tricky because the real structure underneath the psalm is that it's actually an acrostic, meaning the first lines of the letter of, the, of each verse begin with the same letter. So like, like in our alphabet, it would be A, then B, then C, then D. That's how it kind of walks through here. That's the structure that David used to compose this. But I think there's actually another flow to this song here. So what I think we're going to see as David sings this song to his fellow saved sufferers, I think are four, four headers. In verses 1 to 3, he's going to invite us. He's going to say, worship with me. Worship with me. Then in verses 4 to 7, he's going to tell us his story of deliverance. And he's going to say, look at me. Look at me. Then in verses 8 to 14, he puts on his teacher hat and says, learn from me. Learn from me. And then finally in 15 to 22, he brings it home with what he's really trying to impress upon us. And the, the header for that last section, the Lord takes care of those who take refuge in him. The Lord takes care of those who take refuge in him. So let's look at the first section where David invites us to worship with him. In this opening section, what, what we're going to see is that David calls us to worship all the time and all together. So first, all the time. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So David bursts out with his declaration that he's going to bless and praise the Lord. And not just when things are going well. He will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in his mouth. That's what he's emphasizing. He's using these words to say, this isn't just a Sunday morning thing. This isn't just when life looks good. He's like, all the time. And he's committed to worshiping the Lord at all times because he knows that God is worthy of praise at all times. He's worthy of our praise both when the sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. And when the road is marked with suffering and there's pain in the offering, we still ought to say, blessed be your name. Because he is continually worthy of us blessing his name. And you got to remember, like, don't lose sight of the fact of who's writing this. This is David. 
This would be really easy to say, like, this is just some religious guy who never really knew hardship, wouldn't know suffering if it slapped him in the face. This is David. This is someone who knows what it's like to suffer, whose life has already been and will continue to be marked by one hardship after another. So he's been there and he gets it, but he's telling us that no matter what I'm going through right now, I will worship the Lord because he's worthy. In verse 2, he goes on. He says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Now, in one sense, this sentence should be a little surprising to us. Because if we're, if we're honest, nobody likes a bragger, right? Nobody, none of us can stand that person that you work with or that's your neighbor or maybe in your family that's always telling you how awesome they are. They're just slipping it into conversations all the time, like, how well I did this, and, oh, you know, I just got one of those, actually got two, and uh, how good they are at everything, how, oh, and how they know so-and-so. Did I ever tell you that I know what's his face? And you're like, you know, yeah. You guys know who I'm talking about. Some of you have pictures in your mind of this person. Boasting is obnoxious, and it puts anybody in a bad mood when you hear someone else boast. But here, David shows us a kind of boasting that makes humble people happy. How is that? Well, when David boasts, he boasts in the Lord. David's not talking about how great he is. He's not going around singing his own praises. He's bragging about his God. He's saying, look at how strong he is. Look at how kind he is. Look at how he rescued me. Look how he keeps his promises. Look at how faithful my God is. David boasts in him, and when others hear that, it makes them glad. And notice who it is that's made glad when they hear about God's greatness. The humble. The humble. Those, Those who know themselves to be lowly and needy and weak, And I don't think it's an accident that this word that's translated as the humble is also often translated as the afflicted. The afflicted. Because those tend to go hand in hand, don't they? That when you're suffering and afflicted, it tends to humble you. I don't know many people going through the deepest trials in their life and they're still so proud and telling you about how awesome they are in the midst of their suffering. No, when you're suffering, it levels you. So the ones who love to hear others boast about how great God is are those who know they're not and who know that they need a great God to save them. And just think for a moment, Christian, don't you love to hear other people boast about your God? When you hear testimonies and you hear people talk about what God has done and who he is, doesn't it thrill your soul? So here's one easy application. Make each other happy by boasting in the Lord. You want to make your neighbors around you happy this week? Tell them how great God is. That's what David's saying here. He wants us to praise his great God all the time. And then in verse 3, he invites us to praise him altogether. Verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. David's delighting in God here. I mean, he's... He's not lacking for enthusiasm or zeal, but he doesn't want to delight in God alone. He wants others to share his joy in God because this shared worship multiplies our joys. 
And we know this principle, right? Have you ever loved a restaurant so much? Like you go there and you're just like, oh, that was the best meal I've ever had. And so you tell others, you say, you got to try this dish at this restaurant. And then when they try it, and they come back raving to you about, oh, you were so right. That was the best. Oh, when they put that sauce on it, oh, their enjoyment of it heightens your own enjoyment, right? Or if you see this amazing sunset and you're by yourself, you're like, but hey, I got to go find somebody. And you come and get somebody and say, hey, look at this. And they say, wow. Their wow at the sunset heightens your joy in the same sunset. Because it's a shared worship. It's a shared appreciation. In the same way, when others worship the Lord with us, and we can exalt his name together, it deepens our enjoyment of God because it's a shared joy. And friends, this is one reason you cannot replicate church on a screen. You need to be with with fellow suffering saints so that you can see them and hear them delighting in the same God as you. Even when things are hard. So that when you look around the room and you know what your brothers and sisters are going through and yet even then you see them saying blessed be the name of the Lord that deepens your joy. We need to worship all together to help us worship all the time. So in verses 1 to 3, that's what David's doing. He's inviting us, his fellow sufferers who long for salvation, saying, come on, worship with me. Then, after David invites us to worship with him, he offers us his own testimony of God's deliverance. His own personal story of how God rescued him from affliction. Look at verses 4 to 7. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. So here David is offering himself and his own experience of deliverance. As exhibit A of God's goodness. And saying... Just look at me, like what I'm telling you, like look at me and my story. Look at what David was facing here in these verses. He was facing fear, lots of fears. It wasn't just a fear, it was fears. And keep in mind, these aren't simply irrational fears that he could, somebody could just say, hey David, that's not a big deal, just overlook that. These are legitimate, frightening things. If something's frightening we can't just say well don't be afraid of that like he had legitimate grounds to be afraid not only that he's facing possible shame there are things going on in his life that threaten to put him to shame so that his face wouldn't be radiant instead his face would be covered in shame he was facing trouble upon trouble Sometimes trouble comes in waves, doesn't it? It's never just a trouble. It's this happened, and then this, and then this, and soon you've got a tangled web of trials. In short, David was in a bad place, and he knew it. He was backed into a corner and had no way out. Things looked hopeless. But even then, even then, 
David had a hope because he knew his God. And so I want you to notice two things that he shows us in his story here. The two things I think David wants us to look at. First, I want you to notice what David does. In these few verses, what is it that David does when things are hard? If you look there, I mean, what we see is that he digs down deep and finds the strength inside of himself to to save himself, right? Is that what it says? He figures a way out of his troubles. He's backed into a corner. It's a real jam, but he, he puts his mind to it and he comes up with a plan and he works the plan. No, he overcomes his fears, sucks it up and screws up his courage and does what has to be done. Is that what your translations say? Because I got something different here. What does David do? Verse 4, he sought the Lord. Verse 5, he looked to him. Verse 6, he cried to the Lord. Verse 7, he feared the Lord. In the midst of his hardship, David doesn't look to himself for rescue. He didn't look to his friends, his family, his money, his reputation, his ability. He looked to the Lord. He cried out to him in humility. He sought him. And when it says he sought the Lord, it's really helpful here to know that this word for seeking is never used to describe looking for something that you don't know where it is. That's not the kind of seeking we're talking about. David's not wandering around aimlessly saying, Lord, I'm seeking you. Lord, where are you? I can't find you. That's not what he's doing. He knows exactly where his God is and he knows exactly who his God is. And so he's going to him purposefully, intentionally, seeking that which God has promised to give. He's seeking his help, his care, his kindness, his mercy. That's what David does here. But now look at what God does in this story. Verse 4, God answered David and delivered him from all his fears. Verse 5, makes David's face shine and keeps him from shame. Verse 6, God heard David's cries and saved him from all his troubles. Verse 7, he encamps around David and delivered him. Over and over in here, God delivers David. He saves him. He protects him. And notice notice another word here. Notice that little three-letter word, and. When David sought the Lord, the Lord answered, and he delivered. When David cried, God heard him, and he saved him. And you see the same thing. Drop your eyes down to verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. This is really important for us to see, I think, because it reminds us that God is not just a sympathetic listener. God doesn't just hear us and listen when we tell him all our problems. He doesn't just take it all in and sort of rub our back while nodding understandingly. And then we're still left with all of our issues. He is a sympathetic listener, but he's also a strong Savior. He hears and he does something about it. He's near and he takes action. We see this so clearly in Jesus. Jesus came to us so he could be near. He heard our cries and he came. 
He took on flesh so that he could sympathize with our weakness. He got tired. He was hurt, betrayed, lied to, rejected, abandoned. So he hears and he understands when we cry to him. He gets it. But he didn't just hear us. He heard us and he delivered us out of all our troubles. He saw our sins and our sufferings and he saved us from them all. The cross is proof that God doesn't just hear us. He hears and delivers. In the Old Testament, when Israel cried out to God in Egypt, guess what you read in Exodus 3? There God says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Do you hear the tenderness, the compassion, the care? And I have come down to deliver them. I've seen, I've heard, I've known, and that precious word, I've come down to deliver them. And in the same way, Jesus sees and hears and knows our sufferings and sins. And he came down to deliver us from them all. Our God is not just the God who hears us. He is the God who saves, who is worthy of all our praises. We need to know that Jesus is kind. We need to know that he cares. But we also need to know he's strong. He cares and he can. And that combination is what gives us hope and joy and confidence. Because our God is merciful and mighty. Our God is kind and he is king. He's good and he's great. So we can run to him no matter what we're facing. Whatever sin, whatever suffering you're facing, you can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. In fact, that's exactly what David invites us to do next. In verses 8 to 14, he's going to move locations in a sense. He's, he's moving off the couch where he's been talking with us, telling us his story, saying, just look at me. Now he's taking us to the classroom where he calls us to learn from me. And he starts his teaching by calling us to experience this same kind of goodness that he just talked about. He says, I want you to experience it for yourselves. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, David knows the power of finding out for yourself. On my birthday, Emily and the girls got me cinnamon rolls for breakfast. Now, I can tell you how good they were. I can describe how they were just right. Not too doughy, but not dried out either. I can explain how the cinnamon was swirled all throughout just, just perfectly, and how they had this mountain of cream cheese frosting. I could show you pictures of how good they were. I could even look up and do some research and tell you how each of the ingredients that was in them interacted with my taste buds and why that made it taste so delicious. But if you really want to know how good they were, you'd have to taste them for yourselves. And David knows that's true with God as well. You can hear all about his goodness from others. You can read about it in your Bible. You can sing songs about it. 
I can explain God's goodness to you in a sermon, but if you really want to know how good God is, you need to taste and see for yourself. Have you tasted lately? Have you tasted lately? It's not a one-time tasting. It's if, you taste, if you taste something that's good, you don't just say, yeah, I tried that once long ago and then I never tasted it again. You go back again and again and again. Unless it's cinnamon rolls and you should probably stop. <laughs> so who experiences this goodness? He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, who, who gets to experience this goodness or the blessing? The one who takes refuge in him. The one who is facing his sin and his troubles and his afflictions and runs to God to save him from all that he's facing. The one who knows that the only truly safe place for him is being hidden with Christ and God. If you truly want to find out God's goodness, you need to run to him for refuge. Taste and see that he can deliver you from all your fears and save you from all your troubles. And here's the amazing thing. This is what got me this week. We know that David wants us to experience this, right? He wrote this song. He wrote verse 8. But who inspired David to write these words? God did. Which means that verse 8 isn't just David's invitation to you. It's God's. God himself is beckoning you and me this morning saying, taste and see that I'm good. Come on. Come take refuge in me and you'll be blessed. That is God's invitation to us this morning, friends. David goes on then, pleading with us with his arms wide open and a smile on his face saying, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. David longs for us to fear God because he wants us to experience the all-sufficient supply of God for his people. David isn't using hyperbole here either. He means it when he says those who fear him have no lack. That means that for those who fear God, there is nothing you will ever need that you won't have. Nothing. But very understandably, David's not sure that we're getting that. He's like, okay, let me elaborate. He goes on. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's saying, look, take lions. Lions are the most powerful creatures. They're the strongest of the strong. Like, if anybody's going to get the food they want and need, it's going to be the lions. They're not going hungry, right? But even they sometimes go without. They suffer want and lack. He says, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. Christian, do you believe this promise? That your God has guaranteed you that you will have every single thing you'll ever need? Even more than that, it's not just the bare essentials. He's promised you, you will have everything that's good for you. If it's a good thing, you won't lack it. And if you don't have it, it's not a good thing for you. This is a promise that I think we just need to sink down into this promise. It's, it's like a couch that you don't just sit on the edge of the cushion uncomfortably 
just kind of barely hanging on to it. So you're technically sitting, but not really. Your weight's still on your legs, and you just feel awkward and uncomfortable. No, no, you sink down into it and let it hold you and support you. And when we sink down into the promises of verses 9 and 10, we find contentment with what we have, and we have confidence for what we'll need in the future. Then in verse 11, David summons us like a teacher, calling the children to gather around him for the lesson. He says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And I want you to notice how David is linking fearing the Lord and seeing good. His argument is simple. He's saying, listen, don't you want to live life the way it's meant to be lived? Don't you want to enjoy the good that I talked about just a second ago in verse 8? Then fear the Lord. In fact, let me show you how. Now, before we go on to the how, we don't always connect the good life and fearing God. But Scripture does. Listen to what God promises us in the new covenant in Jeremiah 32. Listen for those two words. God says, I will give them one heart and one way. Why? That they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Do you hear what God's promising? God promises to never stop doing good to us. Get your minds around that. He promises, I won't stop. Won't stop what? I won't stop doing good to you. Not only that, he says, and I'm going to put the fear of me in your heart so that you'll never turn away from me as your greatest source of good and the supplier of every good thing you enjoy. He's saying like, I'm where all the good is, so I'm going to make sure you never walk away from me. Because if you walked away, you'd be missing out on good, and I don't want that. I'm going to just do good, do good, do good, do good, and I'm going to work in you so that you never leave. You just keep standing there saying, more please, more please, more please. That's why David says, fear the Lord. He's not threatening them. He's not berating them. He's pleading, saying, fear the Lord, you as saints. Why? Because when you do, you will lack no good thing. So fear the Lord, Chapelwood. Fear the Lord. Next, David shows us that the good we enjoy is connected to the good we do. He's going to teach us now what the fear of the Lord looks like. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, there's a lot we could say here, but I think the key thing to see is the two different directions the fear of the Lord takes. First, it consistently moves away from evil. Do you notice that word from is in each of those first three commands? Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil. So a life that fears the Lord means consistently moving away from from saying and doing what is evil. Instead, 
when we fear the Lord, we are consistently moving toward good. We are running after it. We don't just avoid bad, we do good. We seek peace and we pursue it. We chase it down and run after it. That's what we want. So if it's evil in our words or our actions or our thoughts, we turn from it. And if it's good, we don't just live there. Too often Christianity is defined in terms of what we're against. And he says, no, that's half of it. You don't just turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Those are strong languages. He's like, run it down until you can tackle it and catch it. David's wisdom here to us is that if we do good in these ways, we'll see good. Yet we know that sooner or later, all of us will fall along the way. That's why our hope isn't in the good we do, but in the good Jesus did. Because he always turned from evil and did what was good. First Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Same language as Psalm 34 here. Jesus pursued peace until he caught it. He made peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians tells us. So now you and I, Christian, get to do good, not to earn salvation, but to enjoy it. We do good in order to see the good Jesus won for us. Which brings us to our last section. In verses 15 to 22, David comes to the heart of what he wants us to see. He's invited us to worship God with him. He's asked us to look at him as a prime example of that deliverance. And he's instructed us to learn from him how we too can enjoy deliverance. But now he wants to just tell us about this great deliverance. And in these last verses, what we see is this again. The Lord takes care of those who take refuge in him. Now, all throughout these verses, he keeps referring to the righteous. Do you see it there? The righteous, the righteous, the righteous. Well, who are the righteous? Again, it's tempting. I think when we read that, our default is we tend to read that and say, okay, the people who have it all together, the people who always do the good thing. That's not what he's talking about here. The righteous in Psalm 34 are those who fear the Lord, who seek the Lord, who cry out to him. They are those who take refuge in him. That's who the righteous are here. And David shows us how God takes care of those who take refuge in him by setting up three contrasts between the righteous and the wicked. So I want to close by showing you these briefly. Three contrasts. The first contrast we see is in God's posture toward the righteous and the wicked. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So David's saying, look, God's eyes are locked on those who trust him, always watching over you for good. His ears are perked up, always listening, ready to hear the sound of his child in need or asking for help. His whole posture is one of readiness, readiness to save and deliver and help and rescue. He is 100% for those who take refuge in him. On the other hand, he is against those who do evil. It says he will wipe them out in just judgments. 
Friends, what David knows and what we need to remember is that God is omnipotent. Now, you know this, but that's just a big word for all-powerful. We can either have all the power of the all-powerful God postured toward us in love and help and compassion, or that same power can be postured against us in wrath and judgment. The difference in God's posture is whether or not we take refuge in Him. Next contrast you see then is what happens when we encounter affliction. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. So for the righteous, Scripture tells us here, we will have many afflictions. So it shouldn't surprise us when we go through hard things. Suffering is expected. But it also promises us rescue is guaranteed. It says we might have many afflictions, but the Lord delivers us out of how many? Some of them? Most of them? All of them. Your afflictions will never outnumber your deliverances. Think about that. I don't know how many afflictions the Lord has in store for you. But I do know this, that if you were in Christ, that number will never be more than the number of deliverances you experience. No matter how many trials you walk through, every single one of them will end with your being saved from it. Now, that deliverance may not happen in this life. God may deliver some of us through death. But for those in Christ, we know that every single suffering we experience will end. There is no suffering that you are ever going through that will last interminably. God will deliver us from them all. And don't miss how pervasive God's promises here. Have you noticed how many times he's said the word all or none or this universal language? Scan your eyes back over. Verse 4. He delivered me from all my fears. Verses 5. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 6. God saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 9, those who fear him have no lack. 10, they lack no good thing. 17, he delivers out of all his troubles. David is, again, he's not being hyperbolic. He wants us to see that God's promises are not sometimes promises. They are true in every trial and they are sure in every suffering. We will have lots of afflictions But that just means we'll get to experience lots of God's deliverance. Do you see how the gospel turns suffering on its head? Is that every suffering you walk through is another chance for us to see God's mercy at work in our lives. And finally, the last contrast has to do with condemnation. Look at the second part of 21. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So those who oppose God and his people, it says, will be condemned. 
There's no question about what will happen. If they don't bow the knee in righteous worship, they will be condemned in righteous judgment. But for those who take refuge in him, none, none will be condemned. Not a single person who runs to God for refuge from our sin and suffering will ever be condemned. Why? It's right there. Because the Lord redeems the life of his servants. Friends, Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, the reality, to sum it up here, the reality of following Jesus is that we will have many afflictions. There will be pain and sorrow. Trials will come. But because of Jesus, we can take heart and confidently, confidently say, yes, I am often sorrow, often woe, but we will be delivered. This I know. No matter how many afflictions we face, we know God will deliver us out of them all so that we can say, no matter what's going on, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for this truth. Lord, we experience the first half of it far too often, that we know the afflictions are real. And Lord, it's even comforting to see them foretold in your word, that you tell us, yes, there will be hardship. Yes, there will be pain. Thank you for knowing that and telling us that. But thank you for not leaving it at that, but for providing us deliverance from every trial, every trouble, every sin. God, we thank you for Jesus, who is the man of sorrows, who is what a savior. Would you help us this week, God? Would you help us to be more aware of not only our sufferings, but of the ways that you are delivering us both now and eventually? Help us to put all our hope there. Help us not look to our own resources or abilities, but help us to cry to you, to run to you for refuge, to fear you, knowing that you will deliver us from all our fears and save us from all our troubles. Help us to sing this last song now, Lord, with a a newfound confidence in that reality in Jesus. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.